Kev, did you want to start since you're the one that hasn't read this before? I didn't look. Did you build a thread? I did all? not. You have notes. Um, I really enjoyed this. I think I, I, I'd love a, an updated version, but I think I, I did one tweet. I said, basically, anyone who hasn't read, if, if you're a Kings fan, you basically should read this because it's so enlightening about the team. There's so many little details that you wouldn't know unless you were following the team at the time. And I found it really engaging to to read through, especially because a lot of this is before my time. Yeah, for me too, like not having been like a lifelong Kings fan, this was like such a perfect kind of summary of like the early history of the team. Mm-hmm. And I know it's like a lot of personal history to Jerry too, but like all all the different drafts and you know all those early Sacramento teams, I thought was so fun and just the 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 reverence that he had for like you know a lot of those players like the Tisdale and Hollins and um just all the guys he talks about are like they're oldies but goodies kind of and I I felt like I kind of knew them from his you know little descriptions of them and I thought his intrigue like how he talks about doing some of the trades and stuff like that how they would like think that like oh this trade isn't gonna happen like what a failure but then they realized like later on down the road they had like built a relationship with the other GM and set the groundwork for like something that happened later on. And I thought that was really interesting because I think we overlook that a lot of times, like when we're talking about why don't they just do this trade? It's like, no, all these guys like have different relationships and different levels of communication and, and like they've done different deals or like have had deals not work out that they want to make good on and that kind of thing. So I thought that was really interesting. I think the uh, most interesting part is I I think a lot of people didn't know that, like how involved Jerry was. I mean, if you grew up with the early 2000s Kings, like I did, you'd never know that he was coach GM of the Kings um, it's incredible how long he's been with this organization and all the insights he has as a result. I don't think there's a lot of teams that have had one person be so prominent throughout the the history of the team. And obviously he's been the announcer for decades. So a lot of insight yeah. into a team that other people wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, and he's just like... You know, like all, like I loved the the way that the book was written so much because it was like so Jerry, you know? Yeah. It's like what we all know know and love him for in terms of his broadcasting. It's like the hippity hop to the barbershop kind of colloquialisms. And, but Dan Drysdale, I think, did such a good job of like capturing his voice. And he kind of explains, you know, like all the, the, the beginning part where he talks about where he came from and how dirt poor they were and um, the Larry Bird stuff is like so fun and interesting and um, but you really understand like he just came from absolutely nothing and had this very like modest 
rise and I think the opportunity levels were so different. Like he became an NBA coach from like a one room shack, <laughs> you know? And I just, I don't know if that can happen anymore. Like he's just like some college coach and like randomly knows Phil, you know, and gets like someone to put in a good word for him. Um, but yeah, just, just really good stuff. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of like, coincidences that made it happen and he even he basically says like yeah the only reason he it is because it paid a little bit better so a lot of decisions could have went a different way so it's it's incredible that that the way it happened the way it did yeah i don't know so i don't know if it's absolutely necessary i even go through the thread since we've already like, we've already read the book. We've already podcasted on it. The couple things that I don't know that we hit on as much in our last um, discussion, which was a long time ago, and Kev, I don't think you were at it, um, but Bill Russell, um, we didn't talk very much about him because he was still alive at the time. I mean, he died so recently, and then Willis Reed as well. Um and so that part of this was, you know, meaningful, I think, even more so in the sense that both of those guys have passed on in this last year. Um, and I remember going back and, like, digging through the book to find, you know, the little parts that Jerry had, like, had written about them. And he's, he's just so funny about it, like, the part where he talks about riding in the car with them. And, you know, wanting to not wanting to, like, be in a car crash because Bill Russell drove so fast because uh, he thought that nobody would care that he died because it was with, like, Bill Russell and Willis Reed. That was hilarious. Um, but just reading about those guys and remembering that those guys were also coaches here and a part of, like, the Sacramento, you know, tapestry is is pretty interesting, I think. Yeah. Uh, Bill Russell... Willis Reed and some unknown died in a car crash. <laughs> That's what they yeah, have. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <Some unknown. laughs> um, I, I Bill Russell is is fascinating because they're like the media perspective on Bill Russell is is really like he's a little bit of a mystery to a lot of people, especially nowadays. Um, so it's it's nice to get personal insight into things like that especially outside of the court yeah yeah for sure and I think um I think he was also wasn't he also the Clippers coach in breaks of the game like it seemed like he floated around a little bit as a coach and never really got you know never really had great success at it or at least not the success that he had as a player I should say but then that he was also the GM here. I think that he may have been, this may have been the only place that he was the GM. Um, and I had listened to Jerry do a couple interviews post Bill Russell's death. And then I think post oh, Willis Reed's death as well, where he just said both men were just so, you know, just incredible and nice and, you know, accepted him and, delegated to him which you know I just think is cool yeah 
looking through your thread here on threads. <laughs> yeah, it's, sometimes it's easier to like see the thread because I get lost in where it was. I mean, the other thing that we didn't talk about, I know for sure, because I just like overlooked it, is um, you know the twin tragedies: the Ricky Berry suicide, and then um, the Bobby Hurley um, accident. And I dug those out. They're at the bottom of the threads thread they're kind of lost in the twitter thread because there's so much stuff in there but i I definitely wanted to hit on those because i feel like those are things that um are sort of like you know a part of like the lore of the tragedy of the kings and like only you know pretty hardcore fans like know about it and people don't talk about those things a lot i mean I know James Ham has talked about uh, Bobby Hurley's accident and the fact that there was like happened to be like a specialist in the hospital when he went into the hospital that basically saved his life by knowing what to do because what his his windpipe I think was collapsed or something and this specialist had just gone to a seminar on like how to to address this specific issue. Um, but I just dug out the full pages on when he talks about the Ricky Berry stuff. I cut a little bit out of the Bobby Hurley stuff because he does say a lot of really nice things about Bobby Hurley. Um, but I know that he he does not like talking about especially Ricky Berry. Um, I know it's very hard for him to talk about it. Um and I haven't heard him talk publicly about it very often. So, uh, like, I pulled those whole pages out. Um, and it's just so, so tragic. I mean, I think he does a pretty good job here of, like, of looking at the personal, but also, like, the effect it had on the franchise. You know, and just, just the promise, especially of Ricky Barry, like, how special he might have been. Um just makes it that much sadder kind of not that it's not sad anyway not that suicide's not horrible anyway but um i just i thought he did a good job writing about it i just wonder how much those two events you know as personally tragic as they were for all the people involved like set the team back as well you know like it's like, I can't imagine that happening on a team that you're on, you know? I mean, a- if you get a superstar, a superstar can really change the direction of the team. Obviously, if you want to win a championship, you need depth. But, like, Luka Doncic, for example, is basically carrying the Mavericks to the playoffs, right? So, yeah. so one player can can really alter the, the direction of a team. Um, I think, but probably long-term it probably didn't change much with the team. I remember one of the quotes Jerry had in the book was talking about how if he knew the Sacramento was so accepting, then he would have tried to build more proper instead of trying to win immediately like most places would have mm. needed. And yeah, I think decisions like that long-term probably influenced the direction of the team more than any individual player. Yeah, he mentions the fact that Ricky Barry 
committed suicide the same year that I think it's the same year that they picked Purvis Ellison. So it was kind of like a double whammy as far as like the hope of a team just kind of, you know, literally died in the sense that Ricky Barry was gone, but um, you know, and then Purvis was a bust. Um, so yeah, just, just, uh, I think this, it's such a good resource, like to go back. I feel like people ask questions about those, especially those two things a lot. I know that Kenny Carraway at one point on his show had been like, why did the Kings move here? And I went to this book and like found in here where Jerry talks about why they moved from Kansas city. Um, but it's just, it's like one of those books like that I feel like I go back to to find stuff, you know, from King's history because it's actually written down in this format that's like, I just, I, from like so much of the stuff that we've read, like the links are defunct, right? So you really like start yeah. to like appreciate and and um, love the the archival value of a book, right? It's so much better than a metalink or a hyperlink or you know because those things just get outdated and i mean even if you have to read a paper book it doesn't you know what's relevant stays relevant in it, i guess yeah and, and one thing that jerry's book does a really good job of is capturing the at like the atmosphere of a relevant season right like it's not super focused on wins and losses but it's focused on the main plot lines of an individual season um if we were going to talk about like let's say not like two years ago kings um x's and o's basketball wise actually not that remarkable but jerry would have like the way that jerry explained it would be focused way more on you know luke walton or something like that there was there was a, a, a chapter there was a season that i mentioned like record wise not not much of a downturn but everyone was dead like it, it felt dead that that kind of explanation is not something you can see when you look at the the records of a team is like certain seasons feel so much worse because of coaching or whatever and that's not something you can get from most resources you just either either you have to be there at the time or there's a resource like this and that's why a book like this is so appreciated I'm, I'm sure every fan base would wish that there was something like this for their team. I wonder how many teams have something like this. I mean, the fact that they re-released it as Tales from the Sacramento Kings locker room makes me think there must be tales from other locker rooms too. You know what I mean? That are like something... I'm sure the Celtics have a bajillion of these. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. Even... I've at the thrift store, I found Bob Cousy's biography the other day and, um, and it, it's tagline is Celtics basketball. Like it's, it's about the Celtics, but through Bob Cousy kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, but that seems like it's pro maybe just a broader selling point. Uh, I think, uh, a, a Danny Ainge book would be incredible to read if he ever gets around to one of those. Yeah, the Danny Ainge stuff in here was fantastic. And just, just, I think, the reverence that Jerry Reynolds had for how smart he is 
kind mm. of like up to my estimation of him. And then also reading about him in Built to Lose, he plays like the main foil to um, Sam Hinkey, where he like he he tracks all these different rebuilds, but he tracks the Hinkey rebuild as compared to the um, Ainge Boston rebuild. And it's just a little mind blowing. Uh, But yeah. And I think his story in here, in one of these I have um, Omer had put a professor. Let's see. There's a great story. Jerry Reynolds tells about Danny Ainge. The King sucked that year and Ainge came up to Jerry and said, I think I know what our problem is. Our, our best player. And just, Yep, that was the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At some point, coaching can't fix the the problems with a team. At some point, it it really just comes up to talent, and and that yeah. quote is is such a great example of it. Um, but so funny too is I think he he like recognizes he's so good at like distilling complex information into really simple thoughts, you know. Um, but I think some of the stuff he said is stuff that like I always knew, but I didn't know, you know, like this one, I think, but in the NBA, so many teams and it still applies, end up playing guys who don't deserve their time based on their abilities. They play them because of contracts or because the team drafted them or traded for them. The difference between good franchises and poor franchises is that the good franchises make those decisions quicker if they've made a mistake, they move on where it's drafts, trades, or whatever, and the bad ones refuse to move on. Like, I think that the first time we read this was at the high, um, the climax of, like, the Marvin Bagley kind of, like, agent dysfunction and, like, hmm. you know, everybody wanking about playing time and he wasn't going get, to get time as a starter and all this stuff, and it was just, like, it just like struck me as something that's so true that, but that people don't always say out loud, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's some, somewhere else in here. And I don't see it like as a quote, but he says like, you know, you can like talk about chemistry and coaching all you want, but the reality is, is like, you have to have the talent to roll out on the floor. And uh, again, like that's obvious, you know, but I just don't know if people say it like in that, plane of, of words all the time. The quote you have, Meg, Meg uh... one quote that stood out to me was when he was talking about t- t- you know, broadcasting. The thing I try to avoid on television is over-talking. Grant and I try to focus on the games. You can't over-analyze or over-discuss every play. A guy makes a 15-foot shot. How much more do you need to know? That's That's just like such a incredible insight into commentary obviously like you can get some guys who are really good at explaining the details that there are great moments of insight in the broadcast but usually broadcast is best you know to to highlight different things not necessarily to explain yeah you know? yeah. yeah um I'm trying to like look over this stuff without being too picky about so, it. Which did you have a quote? So Meg, with your quote that you that you put up, uh, it still applies. Playing guys who don't deserve time, their time based on their abilities. They play them because of contracts or because the team drafted them or traded for them. So I thought to try to like potentially apply that to the Kings. Hello, you gonna? You have the hand raised? Are you gonna? Oh, oh can you not hear John? 
No, I you can't. Know, I, this I, is like the stupid spaces. I don't feel like they're working properly either. So for everybody in here, keep going, John, because I can hear you, and I'll put it in the, okay. the recording. Right. But I don't know what's up with it. But everyone in here, if you're interested, I have this playback room set up, which I'm going to start using for these meetings. Um, because I just don't trust spaces anymore. All right. They just break and do weird stuff. But sorry, John, go ahead and Kevin, no have, I'll let you know when he's He may done. come back. I think he may. <laughs> yeah, I think he's toggling yeah, probably. He's going to go back in. Okay. All right. Well, um, I want to apply this to the current King's. Hold on a second. Current King's um, uh, team. And I, not that I think that either of these two players are going to be uh, bad per se. They're going to be bad players. But, like, um, what happens if Sasha Vesengoff is good, like, really good, and um, he's a natural four, and I guess, you know, it's kind of less than ideal that Keegan's probably probably not a natural three, but if Keegan plays three and Vesengoff plays four, Vesengoff could potentially start if he's really good, maybe after a couple 20-something games. But Barnes is kind of slotted in there at that four spot, Um and Barnes is going to make eighteen million or seventeen, whatever it is, in the teens, in the high teens next year. Zinkoff is going to make seven, whatever, something like that, next year. Do you think? And Barnes is a, is a seasoned vet and well respected around the league and whatever, blah blah blah. Would you think that they might uh, just keep Barnes in a more minutes per game role? I don't really care about starting or coming off the bench, but more minutes per game role, even though he might be better as a super sub, um, six man. You know, would that be a something that might happen yeah god it's so hard to say right i mean and does it i guess like as per what jerry said would it matter like whose agent is saying what (laughs) you know um i would think that for harrison barnes this is probably if he's being realistic what i would think about his career is this is his last big contract right and he got three years at almost $18 million per year. So who the fuck cares? Like, he's getting paid. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not saying that they should sit him for Sasha unless Sasha's better. But uh, I am saying that I think that Harrison probably, again, if he's being reasonable, like, knows that that's, that could happen, Right. I mean, as you get older, don't you realize that younger guys can come in and outplay you? I mean, the other side of that, too, for me, is, like, I look at the way that Mike Brown has used the roster, and I don't feel like there is as much of this kind of um, favoritism as far as, like, agents and contracts and stuff like that. Because if there was, he would have played Rashawn. He would have had to play Rashawn, right? Yeah, I get that. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Can you hear me now, Kevin? Yeah, I I can. Uh, Leaving seemingly fixed that. Um, I I think that Sasha is a more natural fit for the roster and, you know, EuroLeague MVP, and he's one of the best off off ball scorers. I. I'd be surprised if he isn't starting next season. I'd, I'd be, yeah, I I'd be it, surprised I, either, way, either way. Well, I mean, assuming Sasha's better, um, I'd be surprised either way. Um, I don't know what I don't know what to expect. 
Uh, one little other- tidbit though I want to put in there is that um, you mentioned Bagley and his like he was out of the rotation was what was going on at that time when his agent was was getting pissed or he was getting pissed yeah. and his agent conveyed that to the world. Um, yeah. His agent Jeff Schwartz was also Harrison Barnes' agent. So um, oh, that's interesting. I don't know if that played a part in Barnes' contract or whatever, but um, maybe yeah. a little bit, but maybe not, probably not that much. Emily Monk's yeah, agent as I well. Think Interesting. Know that. I guess he's a big agent. He's a big time agent. He, he, he's the agent for a lot of guys. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So okay. So I can't. I don't have it tracked in this in the threads. I don't think. But there is one story that Jerry tells in this book too about when they had a fairly good team and he was the coach of it, and he was like, "I tricked everybody because my bench was way better than my starters." Of my, I could put my starters in, and if they could hold on until the bench got in, I knew we were going to win because the bench was better. But I just had to play all these guys as starters because that was like the hierarchy, right? So I totally think that's doable. Like, I know that there's this, like, cachet and guys get paid based on, like, starter criteria and all that stuff. But I do think, like, a good coach can find – it's not – I mean, you, ha- you have to be able to, like, have a certain lack of ego to be on a winning team, right? And I think, like, Pete Carrill talks about it, too, where it's like, what are you going to sacrifice to make the team, you know, the priority over your own stats? And, and to me, it's like, I don't think – like I said, I think where Harrison is in his career, I don't think he's like an egomaniac by any stretch. I feel like he would understand, especially the fact that he wanted to come back here too. You know, I think if he wanted to leave, he would have left, but I think he likes winning and he likes being a part of it. And he understands that Mike is going to put him in a position to be a, a part of it, you know, and if it's as a starter or a bench player, who really cares? But I also think we could, like, what's exciting to me is, like, how they started mixing the bench into the starters so much last year. So you really couldn't, like, it was always De'Aaron playing with more, you know, some of the bench players, Domas playing with some of the bench players after, like, the first six minutes of the game. The starters were just mixed in with everybody else. Uh, because of like the rhythm and the feeling that whatever Mike Brown had about it, you know? So I think he, he could figure out something like in that last part of the season, post all-star break, if you go look at all the splits, the bench was actually better plus minus than the starters were. Right. So I think there's the, the potentiality for that as well. Well, it's also partially because they're playing against um, other benches, you know, and, and to a certain degree. Um, yeah. You know, like well, yeah, an example you brought from the book, to bring it back to the book a little, a little bit, is that uh, was he saying that his players, his starters, were not as good as his bench players? Or was he saying that his bench players were better than the other team's bench players? And his starters were kind of good enough to hang in there with the other team's starters – and then the other, then their our bench, the Kings bench, could come and beat the other team's bench, and like you know, between the first and second quarters, they could get, build a lead. You know, I think that's. I don't remember exactly what he was saying. I think it could have been either, either or, but um, 
Yeah, I might have to dig in a little bit more to actually find yeah. the extended story. Let me see if I have it in the highlights so that I could like narrow it down. Oh, okay. So page 410. Let me see if I can pull the book up here. Uh, page 410. Oh. It's not on page 410. Anyways, I can't, I won't be able to find it in, in a good neither amount of time I, yeah. to read it. Yeah, neither um, my page numbers are all screwed up too for some reason. But yeah, that's a good that's a good point. I I don't remember. I just remember it. Um, I just remember it being like, well, why don't people do that all the time? Like everybody always talks about the starters, right? The starters, and I think you can assume that the starters are the ones who are also going to play the majority of minutes. So I mean, that's the other factor. Is like you're saying, yeah, they're playing against um lesser players theoretically because they're playing against the other people's bench but it's also like how do you distribute those minutes um in a way that puts you at better advantage against you know the the oppositional players I wish I have this in iBooks and not in Kindle. It's easier to find stuff in Kindle, but I'm not going to try and dig for it. I thought, and then the stuff about like the 2002 team, um, that was more stuff that I like knew about already. That was not all totally new history to me, you know, but it was still fun to like, read through it and and see what he had to say about like Jeff Petrie and um I I I had highlighted this players can't do what the coach wants and others won't when great coaching and great players work together though you get great teams that are wonderful to watch and they win championships so there's some element of of coaching and players you know like I said, sort of sacrificing um, that creates this greatness and allows for winning basketball, which is something I definitely saw last year, you know, in the, in the, as far as the Kings go. Um, he also talks in here that made me think about um, the Kermit Washington stuff was he said, I learned um, I learned a valuable lesson from Travis. You can't assume that players can change positions. So I, I wonder, like, now it's supposedly, like, positionless basketball and all that, and everybody has different skills. And, like, you know, like, I w just watched Victor Winbinyama like, do a bunch of crazy shit on the court. Um, with, I, like, I think really... that's still true. Um, Aaron Gordon is actually a really great example. They tried to oh. make him into like a, a three right they tried to make him an offensive guy yeah. and do everything guy but then and that's why he wanted to leave the, the magic because he wanted a more defined role he wanted to play his role and in the good, second yeah. he, he got to denver you know he's an all-star basically not 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 technically but 
but almost. Yeah, and I think like uh, that's that's a perfect call out. And I, I think like regardless of whether or not you're calling somebody the center or whatever, you have to have the distribution of the skills wherever yeah. they're coming from. So um, if you have somebody, basketball. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm just gonna say if you have, I know that the, I was listening to some podcast and I can't remember which one it was, but they were saying like that they're classifying Victor as a, as a four they're they're listing him as a power forward um and um because they don't want to put the responsibility of the center position on him yet and i thought that was really interesting like are they going to change that at some point or i mean it probably doesn't matter really but um i think it gives them more flexibility to do that because then you have your your um, rim protection and your um, shot blocking, you know, all at the small forward, and you can still slot a center in who can either stretch or post play, right? Which is Victor maybe isn't quite ready to be a fantastic post player. Theoretically, I don't know. He could probably do anything. I I think that um position your position is basically who you can defend and on offense you play a role um you need to make sure you stay with your role or you develop your role or you build or i mean you can theoretically change your role you you see some guards go from like a more of a shooting guard to to more of a point guard james harden but but obviously that's that's pretty hard It, it takes a special player to to really change the role and and I think Victor in particular, I think on offense he can do anything, but on defense that's that's probably the right decision. But but I mean he's probably fast enough. He, he when you watch him play, he's he he looks more like a perimeter focused guy. And and if he can keep up with other wings, then then it would be okay. But I I, I want to see him go against like Sasha, for example. If if he's our four. And you know, incredible off-ball guys against a big center. Will he be able to keep up with them? Yeah, I think the girthiness. I, I think girthiness. Like I watch, I watch the the U nineteen FIBA or whatever that team was with Kenneth Lofton Jr. and um, Chet Holmgren versus Victor. And he, he really struggled with, with Kenneth Lofton. He he's a fun player to watch by like Kenneth Lofton. Like definitely old school style play, but, but tremendously fun. Oh I lost my mic, I think. Can you hear me? Yeah. Weird. Audio. <laughs> like my my earbuds just like took a dive somehow. Yeah, we can hear, yeah, we can hear you. Hear, you sound different, but we can oh, still okay. hear you. Yeah, cool. you, sound, you sound yeah. different. Yeah. Um. Uh. So yeah, what, John, were you going to say something? Did you have something? Well, just a little bit on 
Victor is I think he'd be better as a trap the box uh weak side rim protector for for now. Just like he could he could meet people at the rim, but like or maybe he could be good, you know, defending pick and roll, being in drop and in 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 you know, the other other versions of defending pick and roll. He could do well there, but I mean he's got a lot of tools. He's just uh, seems to be pretty pretty thin so far, but that'll change in time. Yeah. But um yeah. But he, I think like not having him I don't know who else is on San Antonio right now, but um, uh, I don't know what their roster is like, honestly. So, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I... well, they traded away a center in Pirtle. Oh, Pirtle, so okay. I, I I assumed that that Victor was gonna play center because they don't really have any starter caliber centers. But if he's playing the floor, they'll have to pick someone up. That's interesting. I just watched the whole Spurs game. Like I kind of watched it in the background, but I have no idea who they were playing as center. Because um, I, you know, it's hard to like watch. Uh, I mean, all you can see is Wemby pretty much. Um, but yeah, it was an interesting game. Portland won it though, because um, of like some dude that nobody ever heard of. Which is kind of cool, which is why I like Summer League. Because there's always those dudes that nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> it's my favorite. Maybe we could talk a bit about this quote from, from Jerry. In the, well, from Jerry. It's in the book. But, um, man, I'm switching back and forth between my, um, between my Kindle and, my, and, and the Twitter screwed up here. But anyway, it says... Um, Anybody who knows the NBA understands that unless you get a franchise guy... It's very difficult to change your team to the draft. So that was his opinion back then when he wrote the book. And um, I think nothing, I'm not sure much has changed except that it's made since, since then it's become harder to, to, to tank, you know, they've made it harder to tank. And so uh, I guess it's just, yeah, I mean, I think it, that's, so I think it was on the old fashioned three, which I haven't watched as religiously as, as I've listened to some other podcasts and stuff, but he said that there, there, and maybe it's in here, I can't remember, but I always remember he tells this story about how the only year that the Timberwolves were any good was the year that they used all their draft picks the year before, and so they had no draft picks to use, so they had to trade for Sam Cassell, hmm. and then they were actually good that year because they didn't. And I feel like that's really happened with the Kings too. As soon as the Kings like pivoted away from this concept of like building through the draft and finding our superstars, um, you know, I think we got better. And I don't think you look around at like perennial kind of championship teams, like do they ever build through the draft? Like, not really, right? They can't. I mean, Golden State, Milwaukee, kind of. Okay, yes, perennial, but... Perennial ones, yeah, it's hard. Like, like Miami. Yeah. But they don't, they don't, like, they don't so, care about the draft. <laughs> Miami doesn't care. Well, and, then, yeah. and, like, I totally get what you're saying there, Kevin, is they have that. They, okay, so say the two timelines thing, right? From last year, the Golden State. Yeah, yeah. That's not. But now they had to abandon it because their first timeline that they built, absolutely, they built that to the draft, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. 
but but then their second timeline i i feel like golden state destroying their second timeline is almost certainly just through like angst like the reason they they couldn't build was because like like they couldn't make that happen was because of locker room and media i feel yeah. like it's not basketball hmm. they, they could have made it work yeah it's a vibe they have a vibes issue. <laughs> Denver has three guys that are majors that they drafted, right? Or maybe maybe more on the in the, in the back in the bench. But um So what they have yeah. they have Jokic, Murray and uh Porter, and Porter Jr. Jr. Yeah. yeah, and Murray. And then actually Christian Brown was like super fun in in yeah. the playoffs, but I mean he, it was limited, you know, limited minutes. But I think I honestly think like everybody's freaking out about them losing Bruce Brown. But just use Christian Brown like that. You know what I mean? Like, he can do the same thing pretty much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, no. I I just, I, the thing, the things that Jerry, like, the amount of roles that he had, like you said earlier, Kevin, is just so remarkable. And, like, the nuggets of wisdom that he drops about each role. Mm-hmm. Um. Like I said, I think it's just kind of they're so relevant still. Um, and I think they carry over even though there's like 50 million more people in every front office or on every coaching staff. Like in most of these things that he's talking about, there's like three coaches or like, you know, or he's like the GM of the Monarchs and then he's also like crunching, you know, videotape to scout you know, players for the Kings and stuff. Like, it, he just seemed like he did, like, everything over the top. I thought it was funny how, like, yeah. he, he, he just got – he seemed pretty lucky for him, you know, how he – they didn't – I can't even remember the, 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 what he said. But like, the, they paid him too much, so they didn't want to let him go. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And, like, yeah. Bill Russell, like, hooked him up and kept him on for an extra year and, like – you know, until until eventually he was an institution in Sacramento in the Sacramento Kings, and like they weren't gonna fire him. But like when the first two years there, he kind of just stuck around. That kind of like he just yeah. got good luck. He just was kept his job or got a different job and kept that job. You know, it's pretty funny. It's cool. Went through like Bill Johnson, like Dick Mata, Gary St. John. Like I don't, I can't even name them all. But he names them all in here, and it's like. How did he survive all of those turnovers? It's just kind of crazy. Right. Yeah, and multiple it's, owners. It's it's like you'd assume all the different owners would queer house, but he survived multiple ownership changes too. Yeah. Yeah. But but obviously he did mention like yeah he he he's lucky to keep his job, but he was never set for success in regards to coaching at yeah, least. Yeah, sure. All of the seasons he was the coach was basically interim, and- so they can find someone else. And have either of you gone to the Van Gogh uh, ex- uh, ex- exhibit uh, down in West Sac? Um, no, I got, is it no. The- this time around reading this book, I got a, I got a reference. There's, there's a cool Van Gogh, a really cool Van Gogh exhibit in West Sac right now. And I got a reference that, that I totally was over my head last time. It said, he was talking about uh, Greg Lukenville. Let me read a little bit about it. Um, yeah. He's saying... Uh, Okay, Luke was ahead of his time, which unfortunately happens to most visionaries, whether it's politics or business or sports. The people who are out of the box, who see things differently, don't always benefit from it. That's Greg Lukenbill. 
if he were an artist, he'd have cut up his ear by now, which is a reference to Vincent Van Gogh, who cut up his ear in some in some manic manic rage and like his own ear in this manic rage. And so I didn't know that that was Vincent Van Gogh he was talking about. I just thought I'd mention that because there's a nice exhibit for sure in West Sac right now for Vincent Van Gogh. But that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, is there any other like stories from this or that, that jump out? I, that early stuff was so cool. Like I loved like the old Arco stuff, the first Arco, and then second Arco, and just how much people associated having the pinks here. The Larry Bird early Larry Bird stuff. Was you're muffled a little bit. I can I can understand you, but you're still you're oh. a little bit away from the mic or something. I think I I think I put it on my chest. Okay. Can you? Yeah, hear you're me good now? now. Yep. Oh my AirPods just stopped I, working. I'm gonna see if I can find other ones. I, I think that the the early stuff is definitely the most interesting and enjoyable because of you know he was on the front lines, but I think the season that the Kings built up the season that we got Jeff Petrie and the trades moves they made the way he described those was particularly interesting too. I really enjoyed the discussion about the, the Mike Bibby trade. Let me pull that up. Um, He was saying how it was basically no risk because the versatility of Doug Christie and Bobby Jackson, even if Mike Bibby didn't work out, they could. They still had guys because both of them could do either role. Well, that's a great one. Um, I feel that way with Sasha. Like, I feel like I know John. You're you're kind of like, why didn't they get better? Like, but for me, I'm like, if Sasha can be better, like we're better. You know? Yeah. Maybe I have too much. I like overrate. Um. I still think we have a big issue with a backup center. I, that's my big concern. I hope we address it. Yeah, yeah. Lim was I, I, Lim was playing that last at the end of last season, and they and they kept him as that. But um, where, where's I, I, I honestly don't know where the status is with Kada. Is he uh, signed a two way or signed a regular contract? Or what? I think he he's a two way right signed now. Signed a contract. He has, a, he has he has a qualifying offer. Oh, for for a regular contract. But yeah. I think. Or, or, yeah. I don't know. Uh, he had he was he, got, he had a qualifying offer at the same time that they gave one to Colby Jones and Keon Ellis. Hmm. So I'm assuming it was a two way, and I think he probably said, or his agent or whatever said, we want to play summer league first and see if we get any, right. you know, real roster offers. So. I don't know. People are pretty hard on him. I don't like for me, I, I look at him and I'm like, this guy's playing like 20, 25 minutes a night in G league, 20, 25 minutes a night in summer league. That's a totally different thing than playing eight minutes as a backup. You know what I mean? Like could like, so I don't know. I like, him. He, he just doesn't look ready. Um, I mean, yeah, he looks great in in some. Thing. Yeah, he just doesn't look ready. He looked okay in in G League, but what what I saw from him in some, I haven't been religiously watching. But 
he didn't look super ready, and I don't think he will. On paper, he's the perfect fit, but that's on yeah. paper, right? Right. Yeah, right. I don't know. I mean, uh, we'll see what ends up happening. I'm trying not to be too attached to like end of the roster guys because I think that kind of is heartbreak in some cases. But um, yeah, I get that. To me, I mean, his defensive, you know, his the the opposition's uh, field goal percentage against him, like when he's in the game, should be what determines whether you give him a chance to be a backup or not, you know what I mean? And see if he can, and like what he's good at is like turning it on late in the game, like having clutch time, really good clutch time defense and stuff. I think what he really needs to work on is having better hands so that he could dunk better and grab more rebounds. But, um, you know, I'm not like, I don't think Mo Bamba is like significantly better than him or anything like that. Like, I still, I still think he could be something, but I think I'm in the minority at this point. Okay, well, that does leave a Alex Len is is your guy apparently right now, or maybe Trey Lyles. I added something when you brought up Meg about uh, Darren and Do- and Domas playing with the bench guys. Yeah, that's because they never let one of them be off the floor if they could avoid it. Uh, it was always Darren starts it off. And then yeah. Darren goes out at six minute mark. Domas stays in until Darren comes back in and Domas sits down and blah, blah, blah. That's how they did it. So really in that case, the most you can have, well, maybe I'm doing the math wrong, but I think the most you can have is a nine man rotation really. Cause th- those two guys will be on the floor at one, one of the other times. So they're not, you can't have a 10 man. And so, um, yeah, unless you have, and, and they never played Domas with other centers, right? So they, they almost never played oh, right. Domas with, with Chemezi, they almost never played him with Alex Len. And, um, you know, I don't know if it would be a different story with Nimi, but I don't think so. Mm. Like, I think, I think you're just trying to fill those minutes. I also think it's possible that they try Sasha as a small ball five. We've got Trey Lyles. Uh, he, he could be your small ball five. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's pretty high on that one. I, I am not, but. Yeah. Um I think situationally that could really work. Yeah, that that's that's a lineup thing. Yeah, yeah. Match up. yeah. Great, great. And Trey, the one great thing about Trey too is you can play him with Domas. But you're not yeah. worried about floor spacing at that yeah. point, right? Yeah. Um and theoretically it would be the same thing with Sasha, but we'll see. We'll see where that is. But Sasha Sasha can does have post moves and stuff like that. Um, I mean, he's really good at, like, backdoor cuts, and he's just such a fantastic cutter that I think it opens the game up in an interesting way, for sure. I just like having a screen setter, though, you know? If it's if it's Trey or or, or Sasha as your center, like, who's setting screens for De'Aaron at that point? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Keegan or who? Like, that's neither of those guys do I really trust as, like, a hub. Even a high hub, yeah, right? Yeah. Which is okay. So, like in summer league, they have been using Namias as a high hub. So they've been using him just like they use Domas. So he sets a ton of shit ton of screens, uh, and that's the other like number I would be interested in looking at for him is how many screen assists is he getting? Um, and they have the guards and stuff using him as like to snake screen off of and stuff like that. 
So, and they're, they're having him do dribble handoffs and he is actually like a really good passer. So I, I see something there with, with Namias, but I don't know that you always want to duplicate Domas's skill set, anyways. You know what I mean? Because, like, what they did last year is when Domas was not the primary playmaker, they just made De'Aaron the primary playmaker. Yeah. And that's confusing. And oh, so, anyways. Okay. Yeah. Hey, if either of you are uh, interested, I would recommend definitely. At least for at least only for like uh, for for a day for a month for one month, Payne uh, for Gibson Piper's the basketball playbook. If you're interested, he's got uh, a Dropbox filled with little video, little clips of various plays, and he's got a playbook of the plays, like a PDF of like oh, that's of cool. little of little diagrams with all of them, and you can match them up with the videos. What is it like a Patreon or something? No, or? it's his own website. I mean, I think it's twenty bucks a month. Um, you, oh, Gibson Piper. Well, I would just search the basketball playbook. It should come up. Pretty, well, actually, that could be a big one. It could come up all over the place. It's thebasketballplaybook.com. Yeah, the thebasketballplaybook.com. Okay, and, cool. Uh, I'll go check it yeah, out. He does Sacramento Kings from last year. They're, they're a playbook from last year, according to him. You know, he he was just watching the games, not on the, not on the coaching staff, but he. Uh, he just uh, does this all the time, apparently, because he's got playbooks for all different types of teams, all, all different teams in the NBA, you know, so, and, and college. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's pretty pretty cool. But um, um, so is there anything else we should talk about in terms of this book? That there's, let me see here. Another thing I could talk about is that uh, you know, Jerry just seems like a guy that he gets to say what he wants to say, <laughs> you know, he was pretty honest, he was yeah. pretty honest in this book. And, um, like he talked, talked about Mitch and like Mitch pissed him off, but like, such like that Mitch, Mitch did us wrong here and there. And like something like that, you know, and like not, not many other people could say that. I mean, it's, it's been a long time since Mitch was on the team, but back when this book was written, you know, it was probably, it's not, it's not a, he could just talk about whatever, whatever he could say, whatever he wants to say. And people are going to say like, okay, yeah, that's Jerry Reynolds. We'll let him say it, you know? <laughs> that's just something that struck yeah, me about the book. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, when this came out, he was still a part of the organization. So I, I wonder if he did hold his tongue a little bit. But he's even like that in the broadcasting booth sometimes, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, where he just is not a bullshitter, you know. Um, I had a quote that stuck out to me. Uh, young people have asked me, how did I get a job in the NBA? And I'm quite honest with him. I don't know. That was never my goal. Yeah. <laughs> if I had stayed in Rockers College, I'd been happy, right? So I, I think that is a great summary of, of Jerry in a nutshell, right? He was able to get up and do all these positions because he didn't have that ambition. Uh, he, he, yeah. wasn't able, he wasn't the guy who was like looking to upsurp the, the guy he built relationships. Sometimes it's better to be a good person than it is to be you know, the absolute best. And, and I think that, yeah, you just have to have passion. And then some, sometimes you, your passions will lead you to great places. And, and that's, that's a really inspirational quote for me because like, yeah, um, sometimes you end up in places that even if you didn't mean to. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Like take when opportunity knocks, like answer the door, like, mm-hmm. you know, um, 
for sure. But I also think Jerry, I mean, he's again, like one of those people that I sort of view him, like I keep using egoless as like, uh, you know, something to aspire to. Cause I feel like a lot of people, like they're really about like clout chasing or like, you know, they're about themselves and like Jerry is about basketball, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And he's just kind of humble and has this, you know, his sense of humor, I think for a lot of people, like my whole family has a really fantastic sense of humor, but it's sort of, I think people who are naturally really funny, it sort of covers, you know, a sense of, you know, maybe not being quite good enough otherwise and having to entertain people, that kind of thing, not to get too deep or anything, but um, Jerry's just, you know, his sense of humor is is just so good and so funny, but it also seems sort of self-deprecating in a way, you know. Um, I just found this too. He tells a story about like how everybody thinks like, oh, just, you know, just like say it all in the huddle and like, you know, the guys will, like, absorb it all. And he's like, half the time, the guys in the huddle aren't even listening to you, you know? So, like, you – and I love this little bit, especially since it's kind of a callback to um, the spaced out thing, too, where he says, so I just – I would repeat stuff in the huddle. I just say things over and over again so to try and make sure that they heard it. But he, then he says, what I'm telling them – is 80% crap and 20% pearls of wisdom. So I thought that was a funny callback to that 80 20 uh, rule from Spaced Out, where everything's like 80 20 kind of. Um, but I also thought it was funny that he, he talks about how, uh, you know, the guys aren't fully like tuned in when they're in the huddle and stuff. Yeah. And a lot of the time, you don't even know if they heard the play <laughs> you're just hoping against all hope that they did it's just funny let's see open the cord up and gave our guys more room to operate he talks about like i mean he talks about the 2002 team basketball concepts are exactly the same as like sprawl ball right because he talks about how like we didn't like our plan wasn't to shoot a bunch of three-point shots but those are the guys we had so we shot a bunch of three-point shots right and then Mm -hmm. what happened like we had more space to move on the floor um you know it turned out we we moved the ball more like it turned out to be this really beautiful brand of basketball that everybody was excited about um What else? Anything else? No, I think I'm okay. I think... Go ahead, Kevin. I have, like, one or two more quotes I'd like to mention. Yeah, go for it. Uh, One about Jay Will. Uh, Jason, more than anyone else, saved this franchise because he gave us a personality. He was the perfect guy for us at that point in time. I think a lot of people underestimate how important a good atmosphere or good vibes can have on a team. Um, sometimes really that's, that's what the difference between a good team and a bad team is. Um, I think watching Golden State the next few years will be a great example of how how vibes are shaping play. Mm, Yeah. That's interesting. 
Yeah. And yet he wasn't here for the the real like success of the team. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Like he established that. Yeah, really the atmosphere. Fun. Yeah, the fun. Yeah. Yeah. The the Mike Baby trade is just fascinating in general because I, I don't think many other teams would have traded the at the time the personality, the face of the franchise. But but we did and it made for, you know, a much better team. Yeah. Well, I liked what you you know, mentioned earlier about the the groundwork for that trade and the fact that they already had sort of like backup skill sets in case mm-hmm. it didn't work out. I mean, I think that's, again, that's like a team building kind of concept where you're building like those five pillars, but you have insurance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so. And then I have Don, one did more. Did you cap. have a couple too? Or you have one more cap? Yeah, I, I can't seem to find it anymore, but. Uh, hold on, give me a second. I wish I knew more about the Monarchs. I really didn't. I, I watched like the one championship game they played, but I really didn't. I wasn't engaged in the Kings at that time. Um, to you know, to be really excited about the Monarchs, but we, the stuff that he talks about in here about the Monarchs is really interesting too. Yeah. And and it's like an, another thing that Jerry has done, revolutionized and like become effectively Hall of Fame Hall of Fame GM for the WNBA. That's never would have guessed, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So, oh, so I did find the uh, the other quote I was looking for. Jaywan had a very unqueer picture of his own talent. He wasn't stiff. He wasn't. It was disagreeable. Probably his only real flaws was that he could shoot the ball at all, and he just thought he was better than he was. <laughs> I think, I think that that's quite important in regards to certain players when you you watch and look at you look at them. Sometimes it really just is that if you try to do everything, if you try to be better than you are, it'll lead to failure. I I just always think of what we call time. It's such a fine line, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like I feel like without confidence, like I was like the the narrative around Victor and Brendan Miller. Like those two like divergent narratives are so different. Like and I'm like, how is this Brendan guy supposed to ever be better if like nobody believes he can be better? Like, you know, I know that there's like other stuff involved too, but people were like, getting I, really aggressive on that one on the the yeah, Brandon Miller being a mistake pick over Scoot and how yeah. Charlotte it, it's just lol hordes, just like we had to deal with lol kings. And oh, exactly, I feel that's, that's terrible. Why I feel so bad about it. Yeah, yeah. I don't, you know, I I don't know anything about Brandon Miller. I watched them like. But he's like eighteen or something. Like, give him a minute, dude. right? We haven't gotten uh, through the season. We haven't even started. They haven't played any NBA minutes, and people are already labeling him a bust. Yeah. Oh, people were like all in after that first California. Like, it's one game. But then Vic. Also, that Charlotte team is really bad. In his first game, 
And like everybody's like, oh, he'll figure it out. No worries. Like he's gonna be the greatest ever. Like no problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, okay. Alrighty then. team. Yeah, that's really bad. Like it's it's one of the worst professional basketball teams I've seen. The summer league Charlotte Hornets. Uh. Oh yeah. So so it's like, so, yeah, he's not playing well. But how much of that is on him when yeah. when the team is as bad as it is? Yeah. Well, I, I would like to watch to read how to watch basketball like a genius. If you look at the reviews, just check out the the reviews from the from the people, not from the review people, but from yeah. It's just they they just they seem to love it. Um, Let's do that one then. What do you think about that, Kevin? You think how to watch? Check out how to watch basketball like a genius on Amazon. Yeah, it sounds interesting. Uh, I'd be dumb. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. How many pages? Let me. I'll do. 